0: Biathlon is a unique Olympic event challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to the debut episode of Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, and I'm proud to bring you regular insights into this fascinating Olympic sport. Heartbeat will take you inside the drama of biathlon, from grassroots programs across America to the elite level competition of the BMW IBU World Cup Biathlon Series across the globe. We'll meet athletes, coaches, and sport leaders, all focused on helping U.S. Biathlon develop champions. Our guest on Heartbeat today is one of the great heroes of the U.S. biathlon team, Vermont native Susan Dunkley. Three years ago, Susan watched teammate Lowell Bailey win gold at the world championships in Austria. It was a why not me moment as she then went on and won her own silver. This winter, she did it again, taking silver once more in the world championships at Anholz Italy this past February. Susan, welcome and thanks for joining us for the debut of Heartbeat.
1: Thanks, Tom. Happy to be
0: here. Well, I know I know this season didn't end exactly as you had thought. <laughs> and uh, just curious, as we record this in early April, uh, what have you been up to in Vermont the last uh, few weeks?
1: Yeah, so I've been home for about three weeks. Our season got cut short. Um, we rushed out of Finland when we heard the borders were perhaps going to close. And that was a good plan. The IBU canceled the rest of our season a few days later. Um and I went into quarantine for 2 weeks at my house and then since then I've been still at my house and still living a quarantine like lifestyle like everybody else
0: You know, I'm I'm curious, I know that many sports went through this with the announcement by President Trump that there was going to be a travel restriction imposed for uh, coming back to the US. And I know everybody had to scramble. What was your situation like? I think you were at Kantalati Finland and uh, had to kind of get ready to move in the middle of the night?
1: Yeah, so we got woken up at 4am on a Thursday. So the US is six hours behind European time, of course. And so... President Trump had made an announcement about uh, limiting border traffic the night before. And so it was the middle of the night in Europe. And some of our American staff who were on the ground in the U.S. called over to somebody, I don't even know who, um, in Finland, woke them up in the middle of the night. They came and woke us up four in the morning and we had about 20 minutes to pack and leave for the airport. And we had a flight an hour later.
0: Yeah, it's just a crazy. And I, I was thinking back to this uh, at the beginning of the Gulf War back in 1991 when I was at the U.S. ski team. We had a similar situation, albeit for different circumstances. There it was potential terrorist threat where we had to move 150 athletes and staff out in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, it was pretty crazy. But it sounds like everybody got back home okay.
1: Yeah, and as far as I know, everybody stayed healthy, which is amazing. We went through five airports that day, so I I was fully prepared to uh, – come down with something and, you know, I just made sure I'd wash my hands as much as I could and the rest of it was out of my control. But luckily, so far, so good.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So what have you been doing to bide your time at home in Vermont over the last few weeks?
1: Oh, all sorts of stuff. I've planted my seeds for my garden. Um, I love growing things and I love green things. So that made me excited. Been hanging out by the wood stove. Uh, My parents brought a cat over so I'd have a buddy. And I've been really happy to have a cat in my life because it's been over a decade since I've had pets. Um, what else?
0: We, we love our cat. We have a cat, Tiger Lily, here. And, and she has really been a godsend. Actually, I, I have to qualify it. It's our, our grandson's cat, uh, our adult grandson. Uh, but we uh, treat her as our own, and we love having her around the house. It really does make a difference to have a pet around, doesn't oh, it? Oh,
1: yeah. it's It's been a lifesaver, really. So.
0: Well, let's go back to the start. And one of the things that I've always found fascinating about you is uh, you were a relative latecomer to biathlon. And now you've become you know one of the great stars of the U.S. biathlon team. But let's go back to the early days growing up in Vermont. Um, I knew your father uh, back in the 70s who was a two-time Olympian, Stan Dunkley. And tell us a little bit about growing up in Vermont as a young girl and how you found your way into the sport of initially cross-country skiing.
1: Yeah, so cross-cutter skiing is something that I started doing when I was maybe two years old or so, maybe even earlier, as soon as I could walk. And my dad would groom a short course around our backyard, and we'd just ski together there as a family. And as we got a little bit older, we started skiing uh, over at the Craftsbury Outdoor Center, which is where I am based now. Um, and there were some local Bill Coke League races every Sunday, and we'd travel around northern Vermont. Uh, doing these Bill Coakley races. And there were a few other families around that we ran into, maybe when I was about five or six years old. Uh, Elsa Sargent started doing these races, and her younger sister, sister Ida Sargent, was soon behind her. Um, and then a few years later, the Drazegacker family joined in. And so Hannah and Emily and Ethan Drazegacker, who are names that anybody who follows by on is familiar with, uh, sure. they joined as well. So from a very young age, we had a pocket of talent, I'd say, a bunch of kids who just really loved to ski, who hung out a lot together and pushed each other from a young age.
0: Now, both your dad and your uncle, your dad Stan, your uncle Everett, were Olympic skiers. But for you as a young girl, was it about competition or was it just about fun?
1: Um, I made it about competition, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm a very competitive person by nature. and um, I remember watching my, my older brother do a Bill Cook race and winning a ribbon. And... I was a couple years too young, technically, to do that class of race, but I wanted to because, I don't know, I, I like the challenge, so I got thrown into it, and, yeah, the rest is history. How old
0: were you in your first race?
1: Oh, probably like four or five. I don't
0: know. Oh, so it was really early on. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And my, yeah. my parents did not push me at all. In fact, I'd say it was the opposite. My father tried to hold me back as much as he could. Um, I think he was worried that I would burn myself out, and I think that was a very good uh, concern to have. Um, He wouldn't let me do the training sessions every day throughout junior high. In high school, he made me not go to all the uh, junior national qualifiers. My freshman year kind of made me ease into it a little bit more, and I'm, I'm glad he did that.
0: So growing up in cross country and again biathlon I know didn't factor in for quite a few years but what was your progress through the pipeline with cross country?
1: Uh let's see. So when I got to high school I joined the cross country running program and I actually became more of a runner than a skier for those years. Um I did both skiing and running through high school but uh, we had a really strong program at my high school in running, so that became my focus and skiing was almost an afterthought those years. And then I went on to Dartmouth College and joined both the skiing and running programs there and I totally fell in love with the ski team and the culture around the ski team. and that's where I feel like I really blossomed as a as a skiing athlete.
0: Where did you go to high school?
1: Uh, St. Johnsbury Academy.
0: Cool. And then
1: you, so so you both
0: ran, did you run cross country or track at Dartmouth?
1: Um, I did both my freshman year, but after that I only did cross country.
0: Okay. And then cross country skiing as well. And you did fairly well in cross country skiing there, didn't you?
1: Yeah, we had a great program. Like I said, um, I always had some very talented people to chase around every day at practice. People like Allie Crocker, um, Gene Pulfis, Sarah Studebaker. And, uh, it was just a lot of fun. There was a lot of traditions that we had as a team that, um, really built, built the sense of team. And we had a lot of fun in the mountains going out for these long runs on the weekends in the fall. Um, and the carnival circuit, I think the Eastern collegiate carnival race series is a fantastic development pipeline for, for cross country skiing.
0: Yeah. And then how did you, my understanding is that you started to look at biathlon when you were at Dartmouth and give us a little bit of a a sense of how that transition took place. How did you get introduced to this really interesting, different sport of biathlon?
1: You know, growing up, biathlon had never been on my radar at all. At Dartmouth, though, I had a teammate, Carolyn Bramante, who was doing a little bit of biathlon while she was there, Later, we had Laura Spector come and join the team. She was also a biathlete who was competing for the national team. Uh, but I, I never considered it something that I wanted to do do on my own. My senior spring, it must have been like late March, I got an email from one of the staff members of U.S. Biathlon who said, hey, you know, we have this development program. We'd love to recruit some top NCAA skiers. We have a resident program in Lake Placid, and we'll we'll teach you how to shoot. You should give it a try. And I'd had a teammate, Sarah Studebaker, who was a year older than me, who had done done that upon graduation, her and her boyfriend Zach Hall. So I you know, I, I I knew it was possible and I I called them up and asked about it. But before that, it had never occurred to me to even even consider it as an option.
0: Had you shot a gun before?
1: Um, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How was that learning curve?
1: You know, I, I remember the very first day I went out to Mount Van Hovenberg, the venue in Lake Clacid, um, in June that year. And this—the thing that struck me that day was the smell of gunpowder after I took my first shot. I thought this is not a smell that belongs with cross-country skiing. It seemed so foreign and so strange. And now I don't even notice it, but but then it was very pungent and strange.
0: Who who was the coach who originally recruited you?
1: Uh, James Upham.
0: And and where was he working at the time?
1: He was. Basically, the development coach in Lake Placid, we had a cohort of, I think there were five of us that came in that year. Um, basically, college skiers or high school, former high school skiers who were pretty talented that they wanted to shoot teach how to shoot.
0: And what were some of the attributes that he saw in you at the time that kind of gave him a sense that maybe you had something that could help you to become a bi- biathlete?
1: Um, probably a scrappiness, I think. I think one of the most important qualities a biathlete can have is resilience. Um, you're going to fail a lot in this sport. You're going to fail a lot more than you would in just about any other endurance sport because the shooting aspect makes things so unpredictable. You can be on top of your game as a skier. Um, and as a skier, you'll probably consistently be in the same you know, percentage time back in a race you know, week to week. But biathlon, you can go from tw- – you know, second place one day to 80th place the next. And it's just, it can be really hard on you sometimes. So the only people that really stick with it are the ones that that are resilient in that.
0: <laughs> it can be, I mean, it takes a special mentality to be able to deal with that as an athlete, I imagine. And did you learn that early on that, wow, I've got to approach this mentally a little bit differently in order to survive and thrive in this sport?
1: Yeah, so- I think one of the things that attracted me me to the sport is that particular challenge. I don't don't like to do things that are super easy. I like to do things that are hard, and I take a lot of pride in that, I guess. Um, Skiing, I've always considered a physical challenge. And when I heard that I could have this mental challenge, this new aspect to it that I hadn't encountered before, that sounded really cool to me. Um, I did have to relearn how I pace during a race because – my natural strategy, and still kind of is, is to go out hard and hang on. And I've, if you look at my split times now, I often have faster times relative to the field on the first loop than the third loop, but I've modified that a lot from what it used to be when we just hammered from the start.
0: I, I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about. A big difference between cross-country skiing and biathlon is you really have to figure out that pace. And I know, you know, just knowing you as an athlete and having watched you, and I know there's some great stories out there that that you are one who can really, really hammer out there. But you really have to pace that differently with biathlon, don't you?
1: Yeah, you, do. you don't want to be seeing spots when you come in to shoot. The only spots you want to see are the little black dots that you're aiming at, <laughs> not your vision blurring. <laughs>
0: Did, did did you have any like aha moment when you were starting in the sport of biathlon where all of a sudden in a competition you realized, oh man, I've really pounded a little bit too hard on this lap?
1: Yeah, I think every athlete does that when they first start. Um, some courses, for example, have an uphill range approach. And sometimes if you're at altitude, um, you can have moments where <laughs> it's you're much more stressed at altitude and you're going to be struggling a lot more when you approach the shooting range and you're probably going to miss a lot of targets. And we've all been there, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, man, it's a part of the sport. I think that's why people love the sports so much. It's, it's that dynamic. It's just ever changing. You just don't know what's going to happen on the next
1: lap. And you never know too, like you could be really unlucky with a wind gust or you could be really lucky because the people around you got unlucky with a wind gust. So there's a lot of things that are outside of your control and you have to be able to go with the flow.
0: Yeah. So as you got into the sport after college, uh, were, did you have any particular mentors who really helped you as you were, were leading up to that first world championships?
1: Uh, it took me three years, I think, before I made it onto the world championships team, three or four. Um, I looked up a lot to Sarah Studebaker and Zach Hall because they had been teammates of mine at Dartmouth. So I, I relied on them a lot to kind of learn the ropes of life on the ground in Lake Placid
0: which is an art in and of itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. To figure out how to live in the OT's Olympic Training Center is tricky.
0: It's a great facility too, though, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough because I, I was coming from college where I was used to having all sorts of different interests um, that I was pursuing, you know, different classes and different subjects, life with a ski team, life with a running team, life with a few other extracurriculars that I got involved in. And then to go to this life where suddenly it was 24-7, biathlon and training, recovering, eating, recovering, training, just, it, it, was, it was so, I don't know, sterile to me, that sort of lifestyle. And it, it, it's not a sort of environment that I thrive in.
0: Yeah. So, so let, let's, let's kind of fast forward it up to that world championships. And I believe that 2012 was your first world championships, yeah. right? Yeah. And it went pretty well.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I surprised myself and a few other people, I think
0: and, and j- just to update people i believe that you uh, recorded a fifth place finish and if i'm not mistaken that was the best american finish ever at that point
1: uh i have no idea it wasn't the best american finish ever i think some of the men have had better at, um it might have been the best for a woman
0: best for the woman yeah. for the women yeah
1: yep but yeah and, it, and what it was in the individual race which is often known as a shooter's race because the penalty for missing a shot is a whole minute added to your time rather than a penalty loop Penalty loops usually only take about 23 or 25 seconds. So to have yes. a whole minute for a mistake is is big. So you got to you got to shoot extremely well in the individual to 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 place well. Um and I I was a very inconsistent shooter. I'd only been doing it for a few years at that point. So I I wasn't necessarily expecting to have have any magic happen.
0: <laughs> and how did you shoot that day?
1: I had one miss, I believe. Out of out of 20. I'm pretty sure it was one.
0: One miss out of 20. Yep. And were you surprised?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. The other crazy (laughs) thing about that day is I was bib number one. It's an individual start race. There were well over a hundred people in the race. Um, And I just randomly got assigned bib number one. So I was the first one out of Stargate. It was really eerie starting first. I'd never done that before. It was super quiet. Like Usually, I kind of gauge the people around me and, oh, so and so is going to the start, so I should probably start getting ready to go to the start myself. But there was nobody to to watch, to gauge things off of.
0: You were the one everybody was watching. Yeah,
1: and I didn't have splits off of anybody except back splits because there was nobody ahead of me. Um, but I, I do remember about halfway through the race, you know, I shot clean. I'd hit all five the first time around, and then I think I missed one on my, my second stage, and then I'd clean the third stage and I hadn't really thought about what that all meant and then sometime that next loop I was going around and I hear over the loudspeaker surprising race leader so far American Susan Dunkley and that just shocked me so much my heart jumped into my throat and I almost froze because it was just this this incredible shock of adrenaline Um, and it was all I could do at that point to just put one foot in front of the other and just keep keep going and keep a nice constant rhythm (laughs)
0: So, so do you generally listen or, or are you able to really hear the commentators when you're focused on racing?
1: Yeah, you definitely hear them. Um, especially if you're on the shooting range and the shooting range is totally quiet. Cause there's some race favorite who's coming in and the crowd just went silent because they're, they're waiting in anticipation to watch that person shoot. Then you hear the loud, the loudspeaker, like, you know, clear as clear as smut. It's, it's crazy. It, keep, you know, I think, <laughs>
0: My, my friend Peter Graves and I talk about this a lot I know that as a stadium announcer you always wonder you know are they are the athletes actually hearing what I'm saying
1: yeah no we often do um one of the things for for biathlon etiquette I really appreciate it when a commentator doesn't speak right in the middle of a shooting bout or right before a shooting bout but kind of waits until after the athlete has their fifth shot to like comment on that they can kind of set it up beforehand but then I don't know, but I don't think there's actually rules about that. And each, each uh, commentator kind of has their own philosophy about how they do it.
0: Yeah. I, I I think it's something that as a commentator, you need to be sensitive to is what is your impact on the environment?
1: Yep. Yep. And is, is yeah. it fair for everybody? Because if you make a big deal about, it, you know, one athlete coming in and, and kind of get in their headspace, but you don't do it for their competitor, like it's, I don't know. But, you know, again, as athletes, we are part of our, our job is to deal with that and to be ready for anything. So, you know, I can't control necessarily what what an announcer is saying. So I think it's impossible to not be distracted during a race, but I make sure I have a plan in place for when I do get distracted, how to refocus.
0: Yeah. So let's fast forward now a couple of years to Sochi, your first Olympics. Uh, I want to get into the competition, but first, what did it feel like to have made an Olympic team to follow in the footsteps of your father and your uncle and be on Team USA for Sochi?
1: Oh my gosh. Sochi, the Olympics, making the Olympic team was something I'd wanted so, 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 so badly. Um, Growing up, I had, like I said, I'd been very competitive and I loved to race and I had, growing up knowing that my, my father had done this. So it seemed like a realistic goal to me. Um, I always, I remember watching Lillehammer on TV as a kid uh, and and loving it. Those, those people were my heroes, you know? Um, And I tried out for the team for the Vancouver Olympics. And at that point I had been doing biathlon for only two years and I just missed making the cut that year. And that was devastating in a lot of ways. Um, It was, you know, I, I had to force myself to refocus. I went home. I did the Craftsbury Marathon just for fun to kind of refocus my energies on, on something else. But that, that spring, I was like, man, I've got to change how I do this lifestyle or I've got to move on and do something else in my life because I, I'm, I'm like too obsessed with this to a, to a bad, unhealthy degree. And that's when I moved home to, to Vermont and have based out of Vermont ever since instead of just at the training center because I needed a more balanced lifestyle to because I'm so intense about wanting things sometimes so making it to Sochi was there was such redemption for me and I was so excited and I didn't want to just make it to Sochi I wanted to be able to place you know in the top I don't know in in Vancouver my goal after that year I'm like I want to go to the Olympics and I want to place in the top 20 and as I Mm -hmm. got to the lead up in in Sochi I realized I can do better than top 20 like I want to go after a (laughs) medal um I didn't necessarily expect to get a medal, but I'm like, I'm definitely putting that out there as a goal, you know, why not?
0: And you almost got there. (laughs) I
1: did almost get there actually. Tell,
0: Tell us about that day. It was an individual event and I'll let you tell the story. Yeah.
1: So my parents actually have a great, great story for this. So my parents came to Sochi and they were in the grandstands for the races and the sprint race, which is one of the very first races, um, I had a great start. I was skiing around the course, um, had pretty good ski speed, nice and relaxed, gliding well, come into the shooting range and I hit all my targets. Now my parents were hanging out with a group of French fans and the French fans saw that my parents were cheering for me and they started chatting with my parents and found out that I'm their daughter. So they decided they're gonna cheer for me too. Right on. <laughs> and so as I'm shooting that prone stage, I hit the first target. My parents go, yay. And the French people go, er. And then I hit the second target. Yay. "Dur." Third target. Yay. Trois, you know, cat, cat, sink. So they counted to five. Er, der, trois, cat, sink. Um, yeah. You know, as I hit each target. So I was doing good. Great. Things are going on. Um I keep skiing and I think about my keywords, like, you know, relax and patience and all these, all these things that I have in in my head that mean different things for me with technique and, and getting in the right mental state for coming to the shooting range. So I come into the standing, there's only two, two shooting bouts in a sprint race, there's the prone and then there's a standing. So this is the last shooting bout. And same thing, I, I start shooting, hit the first target, er, yay, der, yay. Twa, yay! cat, yay! And then I miss my last target by about you know a fraction of a centimeter, and my mom goes shit, and the French fans all go shit. So <laughs> we have this family joke that that's how you can't five, five. That's, that's
0: hilarious. <laughs> and and so so that what was the impact of, of 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 that one miss? Yeah.
1: So I didn't know this at the time because I don't have live info like a television viewer does um in the middle of a race but the splits were such that if i had hit that last shot i likely would have had a silver medal at the olympics um i ended up about 24 seconds out of silver i think something pretty darn close to that and it takes about 23 to 25 seconds to go around the penalty loop so But yeah, you know, I came out of that and I was just, I was so happy to have that good of a race at the Olympics. And I was a little bit bummed about that, but I was also super excited about having another opportunity in the pursuit and being so close to the front. So I had, I feel like I had a good attitude at that point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then how did the rest of the Olympics go?
1: Um, I had some good races there. Uh, I think my best finish was uh, 11th place and it might've been the mass start. We had a fantastic relay. I think it was the best woman's relay we've ever had. We got sixth place. It was seventh at the time, but one of the teams ahead of us got disqualified later for doping issues. Um, so a top six is a really big deal for the American biathlon program.
0: Yeah. And then you went on to close out the season in Oslo with another great performance.
1: Yes. So I watched my teammate Lowell, Bailey, um, and Contiolati, which I think was a couple of weeks after the olympics uh get on the podium for the first time in his career and that was really inspiring and i've often found that when i see a teammate do something pretty amazing and well it it somehow inspires me and it builds some sort of momentum on the team or a little a little bit of belief maybe um in the possibility of things in the next week in in oslo i got on the podium for the first time myself so that was that was really cool
0: um, you know, love there to really to is something to, to seeing a teammate have success, to know that, hey, I can do that too, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, there's something extremely powerful about that. Um, and one of my heroes throughout my uh, racing career has been Keegan Randall, just because she was, she's was she been such a leader for for breaking new barriers and um, just showing people what's possible. And once once people really believe it's possible, then that starts the ball rolling. But it takes it takes some, some real guts to, to make that happen and be the first one to break through. So when I was, when I was in high school, I had a, a, a poster of the U.S. ski team on my wall and it was a bunch of dudes and one, one girl. And it wasn't, I don't remember who it was. It was not Keegan at the time, but just to see that program shift in a very short amount of time, you know, it's been so inspiring to me. So I always try to feed off the success of others like that.
0: Do you do you think about that too with yourself and also with Lowell that the two of you are also having that kind of impact on
1: kids? I hope we can. I mean, I hope we can help make a positive impact on U.S. biathlon. It's a really cool sport and it's it's undiscovered in a lot of ways. I think it's the best kept secret in the American Nordic world. Um, but I would love to. I would love to inspire kids. <laughs>
0: Well, it's been interesting too to to watch uh, uh, the the number of athletes who have, are transitioning from cross country at the elite end uh, as well uh, into biathlon. It's 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 pretty exciting to see that now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's some some big names every few years somewhere, and in the US, we've uh, we've su- succeeded in uh, converting people to biathlon kind of later than than normal. Um, we get a lot of really talented NCAA skiers. Most of our women's program currently is, didn't get into biathlon until late, so.
0: So, so let's let's move on now to the 2017 World Championships. Truly a remarkable uh, event for the USA. Uh, Lowell Bailey got his gold medal first. You had not been having maybe the greatest of World Championships, but again, let's go back to that same concept that you saw your teammate do it, and you said, "I can do it too."
1: Yeah, that was that was an incredible day because. Lowell won a gold medal there, and it was the first time an American had won a gold medal in a bio- international biathlon, well, a senior-level biathlon competition ever. Like, we'd never won a World Cup. we had never won a World Championships. And then he did it, and he did it in an extremely dramatic fashion. Um, he was one of the last starters in the individual. Uh, he was, I think, 0.3 seconds either ahead or behind, going up one of the last big uphills and it was it really came, came down to the wire at the finish um and he he just snuck in and, and and snagged that gold and it was just unbelievable there was this this incredible footage of our high performance director bear eisenbichler who had been working with the team for about 20 years uh, greeting Lowell at the finish and both of them are just in tears you know it was it was really cool we were jumping up and down in the hotel room watching it on tv and as soon as that happened we we're like. Ah, oh, Claire and I are like, we gotta go. We So we grabbed one of the team bands and we drove over to the ven- venue so we could see the flower ceremony. Um, it was it was awesome.
0: <laughs> cool. So, so how did you then translate that over the next few days to your silver medal?
1: Yeah, so, like you said, I hadn't had the best world championships that week leading up to that. Um, but after Lowell's performance, i I just had the Shell Silverstein poem going through my head uh it's the listen to the mustn'ts child listen to the don'ts listen to the never haves i don't remember it exactly word for word but it, it gets at this idea of like why not like you know yeah it's maybe it's unlikely or maybe it's not not people will tell you it's not possible but why not you know don't don't count it out it's possible um and I think sometimes when you're you stop wanting something too much and you're more at peace with just letting things be, but still believing in the possibility of them, uh, Biocon can click click really well. Um, and I feel like I was in a, the right mindset for that uh, after at that point. And a lot of the pressure was taken off because I feel like our staff were so psyched and everybody was so happy with Lowell's performance. If we got anything else after that, it's just icing on the cake, right? And so it's not like I felt any pressure, you know. So that was that was a cool position to be in.
0: Yeah. And how did you shoot in that medal winning performance?
1: Yeah. So that was still is my all time best shooting performance of my career. And I hit all, all 20 shots. It's the only time I've hit 20 out of 20 in a race. Um, but I, it's also the manner in which I did it because the shooting times were pretty, pretty fast. Um, I think I had a standing stage that was maybe 20 seconds or so. Um, and that was the result of a lot of work over the two years leading up to those championships. Um, I think in the spring of 2015, I sat down with a sports psychologist and I said, look, I am losing sometimes up to 10 or 15 seconds to my competitors every single stage that I come in to shoot. Like, I'm just taking too long to shoot. Like, I need to, I need to figure out how to do this faster. And we broke down the shooting process in a very systematic way to simplify it in my head and um, streamline the way I thought about it. And I started doing, watching a lot of video of people who shoot really fast on the World Cup, and and I did this in the spring when I wasn't shooting myself, so that I could kind of reset to a new normal of thinking about shooting as a as a quick thing and a fast thing instead of kind of you know continuing along on that vein I had been in, um, and so I, I did this reset thing where I started shooting fast, and I and when I started doing it those that, that first few months I. I shot a lot on paper, so I wouldn't get the immediate result of whether it was a hit or a miss. And I just got used to the process and feeling, making fast feel normal. And over the next two years, I, I, I started hitting the targets a lot more while shooting fast. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful thing when it works right. Um, but it really, it really worked out in that world championships race. I, I come into the range with a big group of people, um, and we'd all get on the mats around the same time. And I would be the first one off and the first one through the split time every single shooting stage of that race. I left the left the um the stadium in the lead. So
0: I, I think the real lesson here is that you identified something that you needed to work on, focused on that. And you got better, and then it manifested itself at just the right time. Yeah, in that and big that, event. that part's
1: a little bit lucky. You, like you can do everything, make a plan to make it manifest at the right time. And I, I had this plan, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's all the pieces have to go right for that to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, luck is always going to play a role, but you know, you can set yourself up for luck to work in your favor. Absolutely, can't you?
1: and you have to if you want if you want to have these these breakthroughs.
0: You know, we saw over the next couple of years after that uh, medal performance by yourself and and Lowell, uh, a a really reinvigoration of U.S. biathlon. We saw more athletes coming through. Claire's performances a year ago, Sean Doherty and others. Uh, And let's take ourselves now up to the 2020 world. So just a a short time ago in February in in Italy this year, uh, a little bit of a different situation for you. But talk us through that silver medal day for you in handholts.
1: Yeah, so this was wild. Um I'd say that this year I've had some decent results, but nothing nothing crazy. Like that 2017 year when I got the silver at Worlds before, I'd had a bunch of top tens and I'd had a few podiums throughout the season. This year I'd had one top ten and then a bunch of like maybe top thirties. Um I certainly wasn't a metal favorite going into it. Um I had gone back to thinking about shooting in that speed shooting stuff that I was talking about a few minutes ago, about two weeks before the World championships this year, I kind of went back through my notes of what had worked well in 2017. And I was playing around with some of those same ideas again. And I'm a big believer in the fact that you can't hold peak shooting form or peak physical form all the time. You can only peak. That's, I mean, that's the definition of peaking, right? It's a, it's a limited time. Um, And so sometimes I save these big ideas that I'm working on for right before our championships and bring them back out. Um, and so that this, this peak form and this sharpness will be there for the worlds. So like I said, before, before Antolts, I had, um, brought back some of these ideas from 2017 and I think I, I think I really nailed the peaking for that. Um, it paid off really well. My first race at worlds this year was a relay and I cleaned that race. I cleaned the sprint the next day, which is where I got the silver. Um, and then later in the week, I, I, I lost the, the shooting sharpness a little bit, and I was starting to miss more targets. But like to have, have that happen at Worlds is such a such a cool thing. And it happened on a day when uh, a lot of the favorites who normally win World Cups, athletes like Dorothea Weir or um, Tyrrell Uckoff, were missing all sorts of targets. I was standing in the start pin. I hadn't started yet. I was a later starter. And I watched them come through. Tor, uh, Doro, Tyrell, Lena Hackey, a few others missing two, three, four targets and prone. It was crazy. I had this thought in my head, man, if somebody can shoot clean today, they have a shot. Like, it's going to be an unusual podium. And then it was. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you did you think, though, that you would be a part of that um, unusual podium?
1: I knew that it was possible for me. I didn't necessarily think it would be. But like you, have, like you said, you have to put yourself in a s- situation where – you might be if you get lucky, you know? So I certainly, I mean, I'm a big believer that on any given day, there are at least 20 or 30 athletes capable of being on the podium. If things go their way in biathlon, that's not true of cross country skiing. So, uh, but I, I, I do believe I'm one of those athletes. I may not be in the top 20 of the overall, but I I do believe I'm capable of a podium. So.
0: How were your skis that day?
1: We had incredible skis. Um, So our wax, our wax technicians, they have to deal with wax. They have to deal with structure, which is the grinds that get put in the base of the ski to make the water channel underneath. Um, but they're they're playing around with all different combinations of this stuff. And that day they had created a new grind, a new pattern to reel into the base, uh, the morning of the race. And they made a gamble about whether or not to go with it. It wasn't working perfectly in the morning. Our race was in the afternoon. But the snow conditions were changing over the course of the day as the temperature changed. And they had this gut feeling that this one particular grind was going to be the key grind. And so they ground my skis and a couple of my teammates skis and they skied them in. It takes like, I don't know how many kilometers skis, but hours worth of skiing to prepare the ski so that the grind is, is um, matured and ready to go. And then they had the skis ready right in time for the race and yeah, they were flying. (laughs) They were amazing. And I felt good on skis that day. So it was good.
0: Did you did you have any idea what they were doing in this prep in the morning? Are you a part of that discussion?
1: Um, I didn't know that particular story about this day until a couple weeks later, actually. But I have seen them do this sort of stunt. <laughs> At PATH World Championships. So I certainly knew it was possible that that's what they were doing.
0: These these guys are geniuses, aren't they? Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You have to be an artist and you have to be a scientist to be a wax tech.
0: That's perfect. I I love hanging out in the uh, wax cabins and watch what these guys do. You know, the other thing I want to ask you about being in Anholz and having that silver medal – as an American, uh, did you feel a special sense of pride uh, in, in getting that medal there? And how did the fans in Anholtz treat you?
1: You know, the fans in Anholtz love us. Um, my coach, Armin um, who's the national team coach for the U.S., lives in Anholtz. And so we were kind of local favorites in a way. It was, it was strange being so far from home, but being so well supported. <laughs> and when I was warming up for that race, actually, I just had a good feeling that day, or um, I was I was happy and and, in a good mental place maybe as I I was skiing around the course on the warm up before it got closed down for the race going up the hill with all the fans like five people deep on either side I just started waving my arms around and encouraging them to cheer and they just started cheering and this cheer just ran up the hill in front of me as I skied up it was really cool.
0: Yeah, it's it's a great experience, and I have noticed that over the years with many of our sport teams that uh, the the Americans are a team that a lot of people like to root for. Let's let's look ahead to the future. Uh, you're still tracking towards uh, your third Olympics uh, in uh, Beijing, right?
1: Yeah. So far, we'll see. <laughs> I take it one day at a time. But
0: and what do you, let's just look ahead one season at a time, and what are your thoughts heading into this next season?
1: Hmm this is going to be a really interesting season. Um, I don't, I'm not really sure what it's going to look like. Uh, I mean, hopefully we're racing in, come November, but it's possible, I guess we, we might not be. Um, so I think it's important to just kind of be able to go with the flow just like we sh- we have to on race days. I don't know how training camps are going to get impacted. Um, I think the first team camp in bend Oregon has already been canceled for May, which makes sense. So yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and how are you preparing yourself now? I know that the future is unknown for all of us right now, but as an athlete, are there things that you're able to do right now to stay in, in, in a reasonable shape? I know you're also in that, that transition period between season and training, but still, are there things you can do at home?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I feel very lucky to be in biathlon compared to some other sports because I need to be able to go roller skiing on the paved roads I need to be able to go running to go biking to do some strength stuff and I have most of those resources available right outside my door here in Craftsbury and um for gym stuff I can do a lot of strength in my living room um I've actually been trying to order and design a couple little systems that make it possible for me to do strength at my house um I don't think it'll be that hard but, yeah, no, we're really lucky. I'm also trying to be smart because April's supposed to be our month off when we're not doing a whole lot, um, and that's by design. It's, you're supposed to kind of let your body and your mind recover after a hard winter before jumping into a new season of training. But this year I feel like I have to go out and train each day just to keep myself sane with a stay-at-home thing. So yeah. it's, it's, it's for my mental health. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think, I think all of us are experiencing that same thing. Let, let's, um, as we wrap up, I, I want to look into the future, not so much for you, but for the impact that you're having on kids. And I know that, uh, you and Emily and others have banded together to really create some programs and create some motivation for, for kids. And tell us a little bit about that passion that you have.
1: Yeah. So Emily had this idea, I think back in 2017 to create, a a program for girls to encourage girls to get into biathlon because if you look at our junior world's um qualification races most years we have a much higher proportion of of guys that show up than girls and um emily had some ideas about that she did biathlon when she was a junior and she said that it was it, then there were things about it that really turned her off from it um like the rifle was just really heavy and it wasn't a whole lot of fun and there weren't a whole lot of other girls there doing it. Um, and she ended up coming back to biathlon later after being a rower for many years. So she, she didn't enjoy it much as a junior, but she loves it as a senior athlete. So she created this Girls With Guns program where we try to get girls excited about biathlon. And we held our first event in Craftsbury in 2017 and we had almost hundred girls show up for it, which surprised us. And we had to do some last minute uh, planning to be able to accommodate that big of a group. And that just showed us that the interest is there We're a small rural part of the state, there's not many people that live in this area. And yet a hundred girls show up for something like this. So, I mean, I think our sport has huge potential to grow.
0: And for you, that's a real passion, isn't
1: it? Yeah. I would love to see, love to see people being active and, um, just loving training and being around their friends outside and living healthy lifestyles and, (laughs) Yeah. Anything you to help with that is, is
0: great. Great. As we wrap things up, we're going to do a little lightning round. So I've got about uh, seven or eight short questions for you. Just simple. What comes to your mind? Uh simple one to start with. What is the most fun thing that you've done while quarantined?
1: <laughs> I think my favorite moment of quarantine was looking out the window and seeing one of my neighbors run by with her horse. She ran by not on her horse, but next to her horse. With her horse. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's that's kind of interesting. We we actually get a lot of that where I live, too. Um, let's go back to your youth. The most pivotal race you had as a young athlete.
1: Um, yeah. So that would have been the 1996 uh, Bill Coke League Festival. I believe it was in Bretton Woods. And I was warming up for the race. And I remember uh, Dave Sargent, which is Elsa and Ida Sargent's father, coming up to me before the race and saying, hey, Susan, you know, you can win this thing. And that thought had never occurred to me before that I might be able to win the Bill Cook Festival. And I just decided, okay, I'm going to, I can do this. I'm going to go do this. And that was a revolutionary day for me. And I did, I, I won that race. And it just made me realize how much this mental peace and this determination can that the role that that can play, you know?
0: Yeah. How old were you at the time?
1: Uh, About 10.
0: Great, great story. Uh, Who was a hero of yours growing up?
1: Uh, Definitely my dad, (laughs) especially with regard to sport. He always told me to keep it fun. And he, you know, when I was deciding whether or not to do biathlon right out of college, he he had some great advice for me. He said, you know, if you don't try this now, you're always going to wonder what if,
0: I, I love what he said though, about keeping it fun. It has to be fun. Yeah, it has
1: to be fun. And he's still, you know, when I leave for Europe in the fall every year, um, the last thing he'll tell me when he, when we say goodbye is keep it fun, Susan, you know, that's the most important thing.
0: If it's fun, the rest will fall in place. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And you can't have, you can't have great results over time if you're not enjoying what you do.
0: Right. Favorite food on the road.
1: <laughs> oh, on the road. Um, Italian pasta cooked perfectly. It's
0: pretty safe. Yep. Uh, favorite music for training.
1: Oh man. Um, there's this song by great big C ordinary day that I really love. I put it on a lot of my playlists.
0: Do you listen to music when you're warming up before an event?
1: Not usually. Um, and I don't put it on training that much unless I'm in a gym, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, favorite thing you do at home when not training
1: gardening definitely
0: and and what's the favorite food you grow yourself
1: oh man uh i had probably 10 or so different types of vegetables last year but i i I made uh, tomatilla salsa salsa um last year with stuff just out of the garden which was really cool
0: Sweet. That's a good feeling, isn't it? When you knew you, you know, you grew all this yourself. Oh, it's
1: super satisfying. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, eating local and eating healthy and being aware of what you're putting into your body. I think as an athlete, that's extremely important for everybody. It's important. So.
0: Yeah. Last question which of your two silver medals is shinier?
1: <laughs> Probably the newer one, just because it's newer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can measure that in any way you want. but uh, they're,
1: yeah. they- I don't know. They're both super special, and they're both uh, incredible days that I'll cherish forever.
0: Well, Susan, thanks so much for joining us for the debut of Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. It's been great to have you
1: on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Biathlon is a sport of precision, an ultimate test of athletes on snow. Thanks for joining us for the inaugural episode of Heartbeat. We'll be back with more content this spring, summer, and fall. And with the season ahead, you'll be able to find Heartbeat on your favorite podcast channel. Twelve, of you listening this spring, please stay healthy, stay at home, and look forward to being back on the trails soon. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. From all of us at U.S. Biathlon, thanks for listening to Heartbeat. I'll look forward to seeing you soon.